0: Hit me like a ton of bricks. I suddenly felt very sick to my stomach. I felt completely unprepared for the mission ahead of me, unprepared for the environment, unprepared for the effects of cold, and I have to admit a little bit scared about what was coming up.
1: Many who've been fortunate to visit Antarctica talk of a place of such singular enigmatic beauty that trying to describe it, according to author Jane McNeil, is the aesthetic equivalent of climbing Mount Everest. It is a vast, pristine wilderness, virtually untouched by human civilization, and one that has become increasingly crucial to understanding our planet's past and its future. Since the 1950s, groundbreaking research conducted in Antarctica has helped us to better understand our oceans, our atmosphere, and even our cosmos. To do that means having to brave extreme Antarctic conditions with temperatures that can drop as low as negative 70 degrees Fahrenheit, winds that can reach speeds in excess of 100 miles per hour, and for six months of the year, the entire continent is cloaked in almost complete darkness. It is, for everyone who goes there, a very long way from home. In this series, there are two common threads uniting all of our stories the sheer magnitude of the human spirit, and the extraordinary lengths that we will go to to preserve the most sacred thing of all, life. Even if it means traveling to the ends of the earth. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, I may be some time. Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and much more. And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Snacks, smoothies, and more. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Factors the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Head to factormeals.com rescue50 and use code RESCUE50 to get 50% off. That's code RESCUE50 at factormeals.com rescue50 to get 50% off. In 2013, the British Antarctic Survey opened the Holly 6 Research Station on a floating piece of ice at the continent's northwest coastline known as the Brunt Ice Shelf. Like something out of a science fiction movie, it's comprised of eight bright-colored modules that look like giant tardigrades marching through the snow. 9,000 miles away to the north is the vibrant port city of Plymouth in the UK, home of the British Antarctic Survey Medical Unit or BASMU for short.
2: Our role is we provide all of the medical care and support for the British Antarctic Survey. In
1: 2015, Dr. Anne Hicks, a consultant in emergency medicine, was the director of BASMU.
2: We train the doctors, decide what kit is down there. We screen everyone who goes south, and we deal with all medical things as they come up.
1: Anne's job meant being on hand to talk directly with doctors at Howley whenever they needed off-base assistance. And it would often lead to surreal moments. One minute, she might be picking up her kids from school or loading groceries into her car in Plymouth. The next, she suddenly finds herself on a call to a doctor 9,000 miles away in Antarctica. In April 2015, she is standing in front of a class of medical students when she receives one especially troubling call.
2: I was teaching on a trauma course, and my mobile phone went. And our doctor at Halley at the time phoned me and said, "Um, I think we have a problem.
1: There's always one doctor stationed at the base. In April 2015... It's Dr. Natalie Patton. Earlier that day, Malcolm Roberts, an engineer in his 50s who was stationed at Howley, went to see Dr. Patton after feeling faint. Moments later, he vomited up a vast quantity of blood. What
2: transpired was he had had a bleed into his tummy. So there was nothing to see from outside. He didn't know that he had bled but he had just become faint. His hemoglobin, which is the red cells in your
1: blood, had halved overnight. Though the station is equipped to deal with a range of medical emergencies, it isn't equipped for what Malcolm needed. In somewhere that's
2: as remote as that, we don't have a blood bank. We can't transfuse someone. We don't have gastroenterologists who could put a camera into his tummy and stop the bleeding. We don't have an operating theater where we can open him up and stop that bleeding. Because of the remoteness, there is just only so much that you can do.
1: There's an added irony to it all. Malcolm is slowly, but steadily, bleeding out inside of his own body. His only chance of surviving is a blood transfusion. But there's a snag. There are four main types of blood, A, B, AB, and O. And each can be positive or negative. Malcolm is type O negative, which means due to the makeup of his blood, he can donate to anyone else, but he can only receive blood that is also type O negative. Basmu makes sure that there's always one person with type O negative blood at the base. Unfortunately for Malcolm, he is that designated donor.
0: It's very unusual to see a very rapid halving of that number. So when you halve that number, you halve the ability to transfer oxygen, and then you see the problems that come with that.
1: Dr. Tim Nutbeam is a consultant in emergency medicine
0: you're not just losing the hemoglobins, you're losing all the other bits of the blood components that keep us safe and keep us alive. It's a relatively rare phenomenon. And it's serious.
1: At the time, Tim was relatively new to the department.
0: I had a very vague understanding of what we got up to, but didn't really have any in-depth knowledge of Antarctica. I was walking past an office door where Anne and one of my colleagues was discussing a patient who was in some sort of trouble, and me being slightly nosy and inquisitive, stuck my head in to see what was going on. Uh, I think depending on your perspective, it was either right place, right time, or wrong place, wrong time.
1: Anne invites Tim in to offer his thoughts.
0: It was just a very initial clinical conversation. Which of the medicines should we continue? What medicines should we start? how can we optimize Malcolm's outcome? But to be honest, we had a few people with expertise in the room and things were looking really quite bleak.
1: The prognosis is simple. They need to get blood to Malcolm as soon as possible, then fly him to the nearest hospital, located in Punta Arenas in Chile, near the southernmost tip of Chile's Patagonia region. 20 hours flight time in total, or else he will die. One major complication is the fast approaching Antarctic winter.
2: For a long time, we said no medivacs in winter. At that stage, there had been very few medivacs in winter. I think two nations at that stage had done medical evacuations. The weather is obviously worse. It's less predictable and it's more extreme. All of our assets, so all of our planes are back in Canada.
1: For six months of the year during the Antarctic winter, the continent is shrouded in almost perpetual darkness. Without sufficient light, it's incredibly dangerous to fly in or out. So during that time, all planes and helicopters are taken off the continent. Even with everything going to plan, it will take weeks to get someone out to help Malcolm.
0: When we had this initial information, we thought it was near inevitable that Malcolm would pass away in the next day or two. And that meant that we had no hope of rescuing him.
1: Nonetheless, Anne is not prepared to give up. The... The
2: easiest thing for us was to make the decision that he needed to come out of Halley because his risk was if he had another bleed, then it was very likely that that would be fatal. So that was the tipping clock that we were against. I realised that it was a very grave situation and that we were going to have to make some big decisions.
1: For any of it to work, a doctor will need to travel to Malcolm from Punta Arenas in Chile. Then after initiating the blood transfusion on site, they will need to fly Malcolm all the way back to Punta, continuing the transfusion and monitoring his condition the whole way. A round trip of over 40 hours. In other words, the doctor will have to stay awake for the best part of two days while remaining competent enough to look after Malcolm. There's no way of knowing how his body will respond to being moved or the pressure changes once they're airborne. It's a job best suited to only the most experienced of remote rescue workers.
0: I've got a colleague called Simon Horn who is a military doctor who spent lots of time in Antarctica. He was on exercise with the military So the plan was to pull him out of exercise and get him to Chile as soon as possible.
1: The exercise was taking place in Kenya. So a decision is made. While Dr. Horn makes his way to Chile, Tim will fly out to secure the blood for Malcolm's transfusion and get everything in place prior to Horn's arrival. This way, Dr. Horn can fly straight to Antarctica with the blood as soon as he gets to Punta.
0: I'd never been to Antarctica, and I was just like, oh, wouldn't it be good if I went to one of the bases to help the plan to get to the second base so that I could at least experience Antarctica or see a penguin or something like that. Within the next couple of days, I explained what was happening to my wife, who was just coming back from maternity leave and got in a bit of trouble for that, potentially going away for a couple of weeks with no clear end in sight because it would depend so much on the weather. My expectation was I was going to be doing logistics and sorting out prior to Simon's arrival, just to kind of smooth the next stages.
1: Thankfully, Malcolm's condition stabilizes long enough to put the plan into action. As Dr. Patton does her best to keep him comfortable at Holly, Dr. Horn begins his journey out of Kenya, while Tim flies out to Chile to secure the blood.
0: I had a day or two in Chile Then effectively, the next morning, Simon was going to arrive. The pilots of Simon would meet and they would leave to go to Rothera.
1: Rothera is the British Antarctic Survey's largest base in Antarctica, home to as many as 200 personnel in the summer months and roughly 10 hours flight time from Haley.
0: That night, I went out for some food, got back, struggled to sleep, and in the middle of the night, opened my laptop and saw that a volcano had gone off and shut the skies to all air traffic.
2: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time.
1: Chile's Calbuco volcano had been dormant for two decades when it exploded unexpectedly in April of 2015, sending a column of lava and ash spewing several kilometers into the air and shutting down all airspace into the country. Dr. Simon Horn will not arrive in time.
0: One or two o'clock in the morning, I realized that my job had gone from collecting blood from the hospital and getting it to Simon to... Uh, it was likely that I was going to end up in Antarctica.
2: I can remember I was in my kitchen at the time and Tim phoned and said, I've just had a briefing with the pilots. Does that mean I'm going to Antarctica? And I said, I think that's a fairly strong sign, Tim. Good luck. Don't take any risks. And keep talking to me.
0: It hit me like a ton of bricks. So I suddenly felt very sick to my stomach. I felt completely unprepared for the mission ahead of me, unprepared for the environment, unprepared for the effects of cold, and yeah, I have to admit, a little bit scared.
1: After spending the next few hours running the plan back and forth in his mind, the time arrived for Tim to collect the blood and head to the airport to begin his journey to Antarctica he has just enough time to make one phone call.
0: I phoned my wife to say, uh, "You know, oh, I am going to Antarctica. Isn't that exciting? And isn't that a bit scary? And give me some supportive words. And she was just like, what? Uh, <laughs> what do you mean you're going? What do you mean you might be there for six months? We need to talk about this. And I was just like, I'm getting on the plane in an hour and a half.
1: At Punta Arenas Airport, Tim is introduced the lead pilot, Steve.
0: I did worry slightly. Steve was a couple of decades older than me. And I was wondering, perhaps they'd sent the most disposable pilot uh, near the end of his career. But I think they'd sent the most experienced.
1: Now seeing the plane he'd be traveling on only made things worse. It's called the Twin Otter.
0: Bright orange color and incredibly basic inside. So just what we call crew seats, so not normal seats, just kind of fold-down seats, most of which we've had to take it out to fill with fuel. Uh, they're not well insulated, they bang and they ricket. Uh, there's no autopilot, there's no computers. Proper aviation from a pilot's perspective.
2: It's like a 1960s caravan with very little insulation of sound or warmth. So everybody is wearing lots of layers, hats, gloves, and everything done up. It's very, very noisy. You are very present with the engines. That's a new world of pain for flying with a patient who is unstable.
1: Once on board the plane, Tim does his best to prepare the space and make it as comfortable for Malcolm as possible. We
0: had to fit within these planes a massive fuel can, which took up probably 50% of the space inside the rear and then fill it with fuel. So I just ended up with a thin sliver of space where I could put a patient which I padded out with sheepskin rugs. I had to limit the amount of oxygen that I could take because I was conscious that we might need it. We didn't know our own performance, like at height, but Malcolm was almost definitely gonna need it. And when you're giving someone oxygen, it comes in really big, heavy cylinders, and you need several of them to support someone for a few hours.
1: When Tim has done everything he can, his thoughts turn to his own safety.
0: Steve, the pilot, gave me this survival suit to wear, which you're meant to wear whenever you're crossing over cold water. And he saw me struggling to put it on. I'm kind of six foot four-ish and nothing fits me. And he just started laughing. I was like, why are you laughing? He was just like, well, uh, the surface temperature of the water is zero. That suit will extend your survival from 15 minutes to 25 minutes and no one's come to get you. What would you rather? I was just like, I'll take the suit off then. It's he's like, yeah, I'm not
1: wearing mine. Joining Simon and Tim on the flight is a co-pilot and engineer who will be on hand to fix any mechanical emergencies. But other than that, that's it. Malcolm's survival is now entirely in their hands, and there is no backup plan.
2: There isn't really a plan B if a twin otter falls out of the sky in Antarctica. So that underpinned a lot of our planning.
0: I don't think anyone knew, potentially even knows now, what risks were involved. Those rule books were just torn up and thrown out the window for this mission.
1: And with that, the journey begins. The first step getting to Rothera.
0: On the journey from Punta Arenas to Rothera, I was really excited and completely full of adrenaline and probably really annoying and bouncing around like an excited bunny. I've never seen an iceberg before and just flying low over Antarctica looking for Rothera was amazing. Once in a lifetime experience.
1: 10 hours later, they arrive safely at Rothera. It's only then that the terrifying reality of the task starts to sink in.
0: Whilst I was at uh, Rothera, they, um, uh, they, they gave me like a really big down coat and some goggles to keep the snow off and all sorts of nice things. And they said, oh, everyone who goes onto the continent Antarctica has to have one of these uh, rescue training courses. So how to survive for 24 hours in the cold Uh, until someone comes to get you. So he started showing me these stoves and these food packs and this and that. And he went, oh, um, I've just had a thought. I I don't think anyone will come and get you. And the conversation just died.
1: (laughs) Thankfully for Tim, he doesn't have time to dwell on the situation. Before long, with the weather holding up, he's back in the plane and taking off once again. This would be another long flight, but now they're in Antarctica. Things are a little different. At this time of year, every 24 hours, there are only 90 minutes of daylight. This is all the time they have to begin Malcolm's treatment and get back in the air. Because not only will it be too dark to take off afterwards, but too cold to even get the plane running. Because even the fuel will freeze. Meaning, if they miss their 90 minute window, they'll be stranded in Antarctica. Unable to return home and unable to give Malcolm the care he needs until spring. A good six months away. Time is everything. They had one shot to get it done. And if for any reason the plane has to make an emergency landing in route, all would be lost. To keep his mind clear, Tim focuses on the most important task protecting the blood.
0: Blood is very temperature sensitive, so you have to worry about Antarctica where it could be minus 30. You also don't want to get too hot because it gets um, infected. Our local logistics person had managed to get me like a thermometer with with a spike on the end. I don't know if it was a medical device or designed for a turkey, but that's what I had. So I was using that at different parts of the plane to monitor what the temperature was. The front of the plane was ridiculously hot because everyone had the heaters on and was 30 degrees. The back of the plane, literally, it was freezing and there was ice hanging off things. So I had to find the sweet spot to keep my blood.
1: Towards the end of this journey, Tim begins to feel the first signs of fatigue.
0: I hadn't slept well because of the volcano and the excitement and the trepidation, I guess. And then we'd done a 10-hour flight. And then we hadn't had any rest. Now we're into another 10-hour flight. And there was very little, you know, cues in terms of light and dark from the last kind of 24, 36 hours. And that was kind of when I started to feel a bit tired. And then suddenly out of one... Sorry, I'm always feeling emotional with it. It's all I am feeling emotional. Uh, We saw Halley appear on the horizon. It's kind of the most beautiful, almost like space station, which just kind of appears out of the ice. And then we knew the work was starting for me.
1: Moments later, as a bright golden sun emerges above the horizon, the pilot brings the plane down onto Halley's temporary runway. Tim gathers everything he needs and then steps out into the biting cold. Now, the clock is ticking.
0: There was a couple of folks on a skidoo to meet us. I transferred a bit of kit onto one skidoo and that shot off. I got in the second skidoo myself. I'd left a small gap between the top of my goggles and my big woolly hood. And that that kind of just froze a piece of my forehead by the time I got to uh, Halley. A couple of minutes later, I was meeting the boss of the base and the doctor from the base
2: and meeting Malcolm for the first time. I was pretty relieved when we got there. And it's important to answer, we had gone through various, do we go over, keep the engines running and leave? Do we go over, try and stay overnight? But actually it was so cold and the weather window was such that what they did was landed the Twin Otter and kept it running so that it didn't get cold.
0: Malcolm was an incredibly stoical person. When I met him, he was incredibly humbling. was uh, oh, I don't know why you're bothered. Um, you've come such a long way. You know, would you like a cup of tea? Uh, he was saying this in good spirits, but he was... He was pale, he was breathless, and he was clearly unwell. I think he knew that he was sick, but was determined to put on a brave face to the outside world. But I think he knew he was very, very unwell.
1: After taking Malcolm through the plan, Tim prepares the blood for transfusion.
0: Cold blood causes problems with coagulation and doesn't work as effectively as warm blood. So I took a couple of the units of the blood that I brought with me, and I put it in a warm water bath to try and bring it to body temperature to then give it to Malcolm. And the most awful thing happened.
1: Tim pulls out the bag and can't believe his eyes.
0: The sticker telling me what type of blood it was floated off, revealing a different sticker underneath.
1: I think we have to take a minute here and truly appreciate the horror of this moment. Tim, Malcolm's only chance of survival, has traveled 24 hours under highly stressful conditions, monitoring the blood by the second to make sure it is in the best possible condition. And now the bag is telling him that he's been given the wrong blood.
0: I felt like it had been punched in the stomach. I've come all this way and I've got the wrong blood with me for Malcolm uh, and we're not going to be able to help him and he's going he's gonna to pass away here. And all of this would have been futile because I didn't check my stuff correctly. I had a few awful moments where I thought I might pass out.
1: Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another
0: vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect.
1: Plan your trip at aruba.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for Dr. Patton, the base doctor, runs a sample of the blood through a blood testing kit and to everyone's huge relief, finds that it's the correct blood after all.
0: I had a few difficult moments whilst that occurred.
1: Panic over, Tim is finally able to start Malcolm's transfusion.
0: After he'd had the blood, Malcolm, you could see him pink up as the blood went into him.
1: Although it's warming to see the instant effect that the blood has on Malcolm, Tim knows full well that they are far from out of the woods and the clock is steadily ticking.
0: I have started a stopwatch on my wrist the moment we've landed, which is one of my habits from working in my helicopter emergency medicine role. So um, I knew how much time we had and I knew the need to keep moving. You could feel it getting colder and you could see that the sun was starting to go down. So we knew that we didn't have much time left to get back to the plane.
1: With only 20 minutes left to get back into the air, Malcolm is quickly loaded onto a stretcher and ferried out to the Twin Otter. Tim makes Malcolm as comfortable as he can in the back while Steve starts up the engine. With only minutes to spare, they take off into the rapidly darkening sky. With stage one complete, Tim, who by now has not slept for more than 24 hours, has to keep Malcolm alive for the next 20 hours until they make it back to the hospital. Most pressing of all is the delicate business of controlling Malcolm's blood levels during the transfusion. In principle, Malcolm just needs more blood to replace what he's lost with the bleed, but it's far more complicated than that.
0: At this point, I'm thinking about making sure I've got enough blood supply to get Malcolm safely to Punta Ranus, which is in theory at least 20 hours away, if not further, depending on the weather. And balancing this tightrope between his blood being too thin uh, and him having another bleed, and his blood being too thick and him having a stroke or a heart attack.
1: What makes things harder is the fact that Malcolm suffers from polycythemia vera, a condition of the blood that makes it more susceptible to clot, increasing the risk of a stroke. So as Malcolm receives more blood, it in turn increases the chances of a clot forming. To counter this, Tim needs to use intravenous flu to thin the blood at the same time, which then increases the risk of Malcolm suffering another bleed. As if trying to maintain the balance isn't difficult enough on no sleep, being airborne, Tim also has to contend with the effects of the altitude.
0: As you go higher up, Uh, the oxygen gets thinner.
1: Flying at altitude reduces the partial pressure of oxygen, which reduces the body's ability to absorb it. If the body is struggling to absorb oxygen, blood pressure will increase. This places enormous strain on the heart, which can lead to a weakening of arteries in the brain, causing them to split and rupture. Though they can make most of the journey flying relatively low, what concerns Tim are the 10,000-foot-high mountains they have to clear on their approach in Narothra, The oxygen they have on board, which is kept in heavy canisters, is very limited as its weight was calculated to the kilo to make sure the plane isn't overloaded. It will have to be managed very carefully.
0: It's recommended that at 10,000 feet in an unpressurized aircraft, everyone, so the pilots, the technicians, anyone who's on there has oxygen. I needed to make sure that Malcolm was in the very best condition to get over those mountains.
1: Although they won't have to go that high until the end of the flight, Tim needs to know well in advance if Malcolm can tolerate the altitude to figure out how much oxygen and blood he will need to keep in reserve in order to get him safely over the mountains. There's only one way to find out. Tim and Steve agree to go up to 10,000 feet straight away to see how Malcolm responds. After that, they'll come straight back down.
0: So we went slowly up to up to 10,000 feet, and Malcolm was okay. His heart rate was fast, he was breathless, but he tolerated it quite well. There was no major change between his heart rate and his respiratory rate from when we'd been flying at a couple of thousand feet.
1: Satisfied that it won't be an issue, Tim reports this back to the pilot.
0: I went through to the cockpit and said, he's doing all right. And the pilot said something like, shall we carry on then? And I said, yeah, let's carry on as planned.
1: Little does Tim know that there's been a terrible misunderstanding between him and Steve. All's well for the next few hours as Tim monitors Malcolm nonstop, not taking his eyes off him for a second. Then suddenly, Malcolm's face begins to distort.
0: Malcolm developed a left-sided facial droop. So part of the side of his face stopped working and his speech became slurred.
1: Malcolm has had a stroke. There are two types of stroke. An ischemic stroke is caused when a blood clot clogs an artery delivering blood to the brain, while a hemorrhagic stroke is caused when a blood vessel supplying the brain leaks or bursts. Both can be fatal if not treated quickly.
0: At this point, I had the sudden impact of stress related to seeing my patient, the person I was responsible for, deteriorate, but also realise the limits of fatigue, being able to process information and recall facts when you are so fatigued. I'd been awake for 30, 35 hours at this point, and suddenly I tried to recall my neuroanatomical physiology.
1: Due to the misunderstanding between Tim and the pilot, the plane has been traveling at 10,000 feet the entire time. The high altitude has not caused the stroke, but now as Tim scrambles to work out what to do next, he has no idea what impact the altitude has been having on Malcolm's blood levels.
0: We'd gone from having the blood too thin As a result of the blood transfusion, it was now uh, too thick and was causing a clot. The brain's a funny thing. When you give it oxygen, uh, some vessels open, some vessels close. When you put high pressure in, some vessels open, some vessels close. I just could not remember if I gave him oxygen, whether it was going to be a good thing or a bad thing. And if I gave him blood, if it was going to be a good thing or a bad thing. I remember sitting there with a scrap of paper trying to draw <laughs> the things I'd learned at medical school and used kind of every day in my resuscitation of major trauma patients and trying to work out what the right thing was to do. And that felt like a really slow process, just trying to drag that knowledge out with no one to call, with no telecoms, with no way of getting help. Obviously no signal to look anything up like I would do in my home environment.
1: Rattling about in the back of the plane, the engines thundering in their ears, Tim makes the decision to first give Malcolm some intravenous fluid to thin the blood to make it less liable to clot. Then he increases the levels of oxygen from the canister. 20 minutes later, thankfully, Malcolm's stroke symptoms dissipate. I was
0: really happy that Malcolm was improving and that his face went back to normal and that his speech went back to normal. I was aware I'd been really caught off guard by how inefficient my brain had been um, when we'd had that crisis. At the back of my mind, or even at the front of my mind, trying to model, what if it happens again? What if there's a bleed? What are you going to do? And almost write myself little notes because I knew I could no longer rely on my immediate ability to cognitively process.
1: With Malcolm's stroke dealt with, the rest of the flight is relatively smooth going. But when they finally land in Rothera, there's a shock waiting for the medical team who come out to meet them.
2: As the twin otter was landing, the cannula came out and blood went everywhere. So as the team opened the door at Rothera, they saw this kind of blood speed scene with Tim going. It's all right, everything's okay.
0: Yeah, I, I don't remember the canyon of falling out, but that might just be my. Uh, it's probably my distorted memory because I was I I, I was so tired, and, and it might be something that the the other doctor noticed and I didn't even notice as I tumbled down steps.
1: At Rothra. Malcolm is stabilized further while the plane is refueled. Despite his extreme tiredness, Tim is determined to stick by Malcolm's side.
0: The doctor at Rovere came and said, don't worry, Tim, you're tired and smelly. Didn't put it quite like that, but go and have a shower. You've got another 10 hours to go at some point in the future, but go away and get some rest. And I was just like, nope. Malcolm's my patient, I'm going to look after him. I think the combination of tiredness and, I guess, that uh, psychological bond that I'd formed, that I just
1: couldn't couldn't let Malcolm go. It takes a few stern words from Anne, 9,000 miles away in Plymouth, in the UK, to help Tim finally see sense.
2: Tim phoned me when he got to Rothera, and I think he was probably the most tired human I had ever heard. He just said, I'm back. And I said, please just go to bed. He goes, oh, let me tell you about the patient. I said, please go to bed and let the other doctor talk to me.
0: I did listen to those commands and uh, yeah, had a cup of tea and went and got a couple of hours sleep.
1: While Tim sleeps, Malcolm has another bleed from his stomach, reducing his blood count once again. With only one bag of blood left to give him, on the remaining 10 hour flight, Should another bleed occur, Tim has a tough choice to make. We're still in an area,
0: you know, we're still 10 hours away from a hospital. We're still in some of the most remote healthcare in the world. We've got one unit of blood left. So I was just, I wanted to get it done at that point. I was aware I was really tired. I was aware that I was frazzled. I was aware that I perhaps wasn't thinking as well as I might, but I just wanted to get this done
1: and get Malcolm to safely. Tim and the pilot decide to push on to Punta Arenas. Summoning what last reserves of energy he has, Tim helps Malcolm into the noisy, rickety plane for one final journey. 10 hours later, with no further complications, they make it back to Chile.
0: There was an ambulance on the tarmac ready to go. There was my friend and colleague, Simon Horn, ready to take over care. We had a bit of a hug. I don't think it lasted very long, probably because I smelt. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then he took over uh, Malcolm's care and transferred him in an ambulance to the hospital. I went back to the hotel. I I had I a wash. I might have had a beer. And then I slept and slept and slept.
1: With Malcolm safely delivered to the hospital. The following day, his condition has improved significantly. More importantly, thanks to Tim, who is in my opinion a complete badass and a true hero, he was willing to endure fatigue, the cold, and all the uncertainty of the mission to ensure, simply, that somebody would stay alive. And he was Malcolm's only hope. That kind of pressure takes a whole different level of mental focus and physical ability.
0: The next day, seeing him, he was like a fixed person. He'd gone from this pale, shallow breathing, clearly unwell chap that had met in Halley to, you know, uh, 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 you know, someone who looked well and, uh, yeah, ready to face whatever the world threw at him.
1: Ordinarily, when Tim treated patients in emergency medicine, there was no time to get to know the patient after they were whisked away for further treatment. With Malcolm having to wait a few days before doctors could declare him fit to return home, this time, things are a little different.
0: We were able to check up on him and have a chat with him and socialize with him as well. He was always incredibly stoical, always really kind, expressed his gratitude, but also very British, you know, oh, I don't know why you bothered. I'm sure it would have been okay. Uh, um, but yeah, yeah, it was great to see him. And I think that was probably quite a nice weaning for me off this period of really intense activity to be able to kind of slowly uh, let go of Malcolm and let other people uh, take care of him but still feel involved.
2: If I'm honest because remember end of this bit of the exercise is getting him to Punta Arenas and he lives in the UK so until he was back in the UK with his family I wasn't off duty. So... I couldn't. It was great to get the rest Don't get me wrong. It was great to get the rescue team back to Chile, um, but until he was actually home with his family, um, I, I, I hadn't, I couldn't actually let go of that yet.
1: Within a few days, Malcolm is well enough to fly home, and Anne is finally able to call the rescue a success.
2: I think when he was interviewed by one of the doctors, when he got back, he said, oh, it was fine. And they said, well, they thought you might have had a small stroke. And he said, did I? Um, And he he was so relaxed through the whole thing. It was unbelievable. I think Tim was less relaxed at some of the times. It's only kind of afterwards
0: when we've discussed it and people have gone like, are you crazy? there's a reason you didn't get taught the survival course. And that was because no one thought you were going to survive.
1: Sadly, Malcolm Roberts passed away in August of 2017 due to an unrelated illness, so wasn't able to share his own experience with us.
2: It was remarkable what Tim did. It was a long, long day at the office and a slightly difficult office to work in.
0: It is an immense privilege to have taken part in it, and I know that everyone was doing their very best to keep Malcolm safe, but also to keep myself and the pilots and the technician and all the rest of the people involved safe. It was a massive team effort.
2: There is something about the community in Antarctica which doesn't bring the politics outside it onto the ice. And there is something very beautiful about the humanity of people helping each other and supporting each other.
1: For Tim, however, there was one outcome that didn't quite go to plan.
0: I think I'm the only person ever to go to Antarctica and not see a penguin. That's my one regret.
1: You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hasabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts.